0: Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert-Kennedy. And this is the podcast where we dive into a specific topic or question affecting everyone like you on the planet right now or in the next 10 years or so. Uh, If it can kill us, Brian, or turn us into superhuman CRISPR robots, we are in. Um, Our guests are scientists, doctors, engineers, politicians, astronauts, professors, even a reverend. Uh, And we work together. Every conversation towards action steps our listeners can take. With their voice, their vote, and their dollar.
1: And this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at ImportantNotImp. Or email us at Funtalk at ImportantNotImportant.com.
0: This week's episode, we talk about, uh, Brian, it turns out more food does not necessarily mean more nutritious food. And guess what? That's (laughs) bad news. Uh,
1: Our guests are Professors Christy Eby and Irakli Loladze.
0: Nicely done. Uh, Dr. Ebi is uh, the Roman Haas Endowed Professorship in Public Health Sciences at the University of Washington. And she's been conducting research and practice on the health risks of climate variability and change for over 20 years. And boy, do we dig into that. Uh, Her research focuses on the impacts of an adaptation to climate variability and change, including on extreme events, thermal stress, foodborne safety and security, and vector-borne diseases, all of which sound lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got like 12 letters after her name. She's got an MS in toxicology and a PhD uh, and a master's of public health in epidemiology. In two years of postgraduate research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, she has edited four books on aspects of climate change and has more than 180 Publications.
1: uh And Dr. Laladze is a professor of health sciences at the Bryan Medical Center. The Bryan Medical Center? Yeah. Like uh, at Bryan College in Nebraska, where he applies mathematical, computational, and statistical methods to life sciences. He's taught all over, mm-hmm. including Princeton, mm-hmm. uh, is an open science advocate, and his research into the quality of human nutrition has been published <laughs> basically everywhere mm-hmm. and cited almost a thousand times.
0: Yeah. What of yours do you feel like has been cited a thousand times?
1: probably like something dumb i said on facebook one time
0: right yeah just but but that's the future isn't it now it's like you could have said those words when we were in college right uh and it wouldn't made sense but now like cited i mean uh, someone in college this is a different conversation this might be fun talk but like (laughs) someone now can take uh, instagram live video of anything you're doing and the whole world can see it live yeah yeah things have changed (laughs) well just Um, a little bit yeah and turns out our food has changed too turns out not great. No.
1: Um, but uh, people are working on it. Um, at least two and for, <laughs> and for
0: no money. Uh, at least two. Anyways, all right, let's go talk about food. Let's do it. Our guests today are professors Christy Ebai, uh, and Irakli Laladza. And together we're going to talk about, uh, Brian, it turns out more food uh, doesn't necessarily equal nutritious food. Uh, and that might not be great. Uh, Christy and Irakli, welcome. Thank you. thank you for having me on.
1: We sure. are We're very excited to have you and thank you for all that you've had to get through this morning to uh, to be here. <laughs> uh, so uh, so real quick, if we can go uh, just one by one, maybe we can start with Christy and just tell us who you are and what you do.
2: I am the director of the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington. I've been working on various aspects of climate change and health for more than 20 years.
0: Wow, so you were one of those first people who were like, yeah. "Hey, listen, this is not great. We might need to." And start then everybody else um, took twenty years. Yeah. that's great.
2: It, it that's that's a fairly accurate representation. <laughs> although there were definitely people along the way who picked it up, but it's been pretty
0: slow. In I'm sure that hasn't been frustrating at all. <laughs>
2: There's been <laughs> lots of very energizing moments as particularly ministries of health realize the challenges they're facing. And it's been a real privilege working with ministries of health around the world to help them better prepare for a changing climate.
0: Sure. And you said you were actually uh, testifying to Congress yesterday. Is that correct? That's correct. So you were able to get the car out of the driveway yesterday, then.
2: I live in Seattle. The testifying was in Washington D.C.
0: Ah, so good. You didn't drive there. No. Good. Good. That's (laughs) great. And what was uh, what was yesterday all about? Yesterday was
2: the House Committee. On science, space, and technology. And it's the first of a series of hearings about climate science and why it matters. There were five experts who testified on various aspects about climate change. I spoke specifically about health issues.
0: Fascinating. Yeah, um, wow. I imagine that's the first time we've had one of those committee meetings in quite a while. Uh huh.
2: That's true. There's also a House Committee on Environment and Energy, and I believe they just also held a hearing and they're also scheduling more hearings, so you'll be hearing more from, certainly from the House of Representatives, about climate science over the coming months.
0: Thank God. We'll t- we'll take it. It's it's nice to know that's going down. Uh, well, thank you for making your way all the way there and 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 doing that. That's uh that's pretty exciting stuff.
1: I'm sure I was meant to be invited. I'll make the next one. <laughs> no,
0: it's fine. Brian. It's fine. <laughs> Things get lost in the mail all the time.
1: Um, excellent, Christy and uh, Iraqli. Right. So I'm an associate professor of biomedical sciences at
3: Bryan College of Health Sciences and Bryan Medical Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, I'm formally trained uh, as a mathematician and apply mathematics to biology. And uh, I've been working on this issue of um, impact of rising CO2 on the quality of crops and uh, wild plants and, and human nutrition since 2000.
0: Wow, so a while as Excellent. well. Same thing, firing yeah, up flares, and people are just happy to not pay attention. Oh, God, thank, thank you uh, so and, and Rockley, much. Irakli, where are you
3: from originally? I'm from Georgia, but not Atlanta. I don't right. have a
0: southern accent, so. Sure. We're <laughs> wonderful places, different reasons. <laughs> thank you for clarifying. And, and how did you find your way to, to Nebraska?
3: Well, I came to grad school to Arizona State University in 1994, and then. And then um, um, I had a postdoc position on the East Coast, and then um, ended up in Nebraska for my uh, faculty
1: positions.
0: That's cool. Where on the East Coast were you? Uh, At Princeton, New Jersey.
1: Okay, nice. Wouldn't it be great if you ended up in Georgia, (laughs) from Georgia to Georgia? I mean, I visited it, yeah, Atlanta. Okay. Yeah, dynamic city. Yeah, and, I'm easily entertained. And Certainly.
2: I suggest you ask Rockley how he first got interested in this topic.
0: Uh, hey, Rockley, can I ask you a question? <laughs> how just, did you first get interested it. in this topic? Well,
3: it, it's uh, it's a uh, nuclear weapons in in cows that. In, I'm sorry, what was that? It, it involves nuclear weapons and cows. Uh, I was. Uh, there was mandatory service to military service back in the former USSR, and I was sent to Lithuania. And we were supposed to guard uh, these nuclear warheads underground um, and part of the Air Force. And so I didn't really like the job, but there were cows, 53 cows grazing above. And I don't know what the purpose was of cows, but somebody had to take care of them. and so. Um, i I got the job of a cow taker and uh, um, the, the irony of the <laughs> Soviet taker. irony of the Soviet <laughs> Union is that we had this sophisticated military technology but they didn't have a single milking machine so I had to milk them twice a day with my hands and um, and that allowed me to really closely literally see uh, what type of milk and how much milk I get. And I noticed that you know, as cows grazed different places, uh, th- they would eat different grass, and the quality of grass affected you know the amount of milk. So that registered in my mind that there was this connection between uh, quality of plants and the output of the animals give, and so that then developed uh, into my PhD thesis, where it was a mathematical model that tracked how the and food quality affects um, the consumers.
0: Holy shit. I mean that's that's wild. super cool. Uh Christy, I have to say thank you for suggesting <laughs> thank that you. We, we get yes. there. Usually we don't do too much backstory, but now I feel like because we don't want to take we, we want to move into forward looking and action, right, right. but it does feel like occasionally, boy, there's some gems out there. Wow. Uh that is amazing. Well, listen, we have to say thank you to those cows because <laughs> yes. without those cows. Uh, we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I love them, yeah, really. I'm
3: <laughs> um, wonderful
0: creatures, indeed.
3: That's wild. Uh,
0: that is fantastic,
1: uh, Groovy. So, um, uh, we're gonna get going here. Uh, uh, as a reminder to everyone, um, our goal always on this podcast is to uh, uh get to um. Uh, to, for, to provide some context for, for the topic we're going to talk about and then dig into action-oriented questions uh, so that we can come away from this thing uh, with some steps to take to help you and support you and uh, save the world, if that sounds okay.
0: Sounds great. Great. Awesome. And don't worry, we're going to keep feeding Brian coffee cuz clearly it hasn't kicked in on that side yet. I have two. Um... Yeah, he does have two and he has two <laughs> I'll be in right. his hands. Um okay, so listen, uh Christy Rockley, uh, we usually start with one important question, uh, something to sort of set the tone here. I encourage you to be bold, to be honest. Uh, so instead of actually saying tell us your entire life story, though I don't know how we beat nuclear cows. <laughs> um we like to ask our guest, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And Christy, I'd say let's start with you.
2: That's a very interesting question. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm vital to the survival of the species. I can help facilitate the science to policy interface. I spend a lot of time on that. And so I can help bring science to policymakers, help them understand challenges, opportunities, options for action, and I've also done quite a bit of work on helping design and implement research agendas. I've had opportunities to work in many countries around the world, and I can synthesize that information and bring forward to funding agencies, for example, what kind of research needs to be done. I, of course, have led some of that research, but also have helped facilitate research led by many others. So more a facilitator than vital to survival.
0: Uh, well, that sounds pretty important. Sounds to pretty me. important. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Uh, and Iraqli, Well, I, I think Chris is really
3: modest. I mean, she's a pioneer in uh, uh field of global and planetary health. And I, I do think that she's vital for our survival. Um, well, I'm, you know, as, as a scientist, uh, we what we do is we, we generate knowledge. I'm I'm not an activist or policymaker, and uh, I think it's a very noble profession where we essentially what we do is we kind of expand the, the circle that circle that that represents the knowledge of the humanity. Maybe it's a little 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 progress, but it's nevertheless this uh, um, you know addition to that expansion of that circle, and in that sense, as as part of being a scientist i think we are uh, definitely uh, vital for the survival of our species
2: and i would add to that ironically we always say we stand on the shoulders of others which is absolutely true and you'll never know if someone was missing from that right how things yeah. would look differently
0: yes good point sure absolutely and you know i'm I, i'm sure there is a multitude of young Scientists and activists, uh, who who look at you folks uh, the same way. If you hadn't been fighting for this the past twenty years, uh, if those if those cows hadn't been milked, <laughs> um, then uh, then we we might not be here and things might be a lot worse. So awesome, I love it. All right, so listen, we are going to just set up a quick little context here for the question at hand, just so everybody's kind of on the page. So we've talked uh, uh, about um agriculture and food and water and climate and things like that sometimes in different silos sometimes mixed together here obviously there is a bit of uh, interaction uh, among all those things but um we we are barreling towards uh 10 billion tightly packed humans on this little pale blue dot of ours um, and somehow we're going to have to feed each one of them uh as a, a reminder to our listeners we already actually make enough more than enough food for everyone on the planet the problem Is of course the problems are uh, many of the calories are are empty. We waste an immeasurable amount of food, and it's nowhere near evenly distributed. There's actually a new diet that came out the past couple weeks uh, by a bunch of different scientists prescribed that could theoretically drastically reduce uh, agricultural emissions, which would be great, and also help our nutritional health as well. But that's all just to set the table, which is just an awful pun. Um, Wow. Here's the thing: plants eat sunlight. And carbon dioxide. And, and as everyone knows, our atmosphere is just now brimming with carbon dioxide, thanks to uh, 200 years of, of industry and agriculture and things like that. But we know what happens to temperatures and, and things of that nature, if, if the atmosphere gets too much carbon dioxide. But the question uh, that we're going to talk about today and that these two have been working on so diligently for 20 years, is what happens if plants get too much carbon dioxide? Mm. So that is sort of our focus today, which is, uh, uh, turns out we've been making more and more food, uh, but it, it's not necessarily becoming more nutritious. In fact, it might be going the other way, and that is not great. So um, Christy uh, and, and your partner in crime here at Rockley, uh, what is uh, this big revelation that we have sort of uh, come to about about the food that everyone's eating today?
2: I'll briefly summarize it, and then I'd really appreciate rockley to come in, because he's worked much more on the plant physiology side and why sure. this is a concern.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But the bottom line is that there are essentially two main mechanisms by which plants take the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and turn it into the carbon that forms the plant. And one group includes rice, wheat, potatoes, major staple crops around the world. And the insight from experiments that Iraqli and others have been involved in is that as the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increase, then for rice, wheat, and these other staple crops, there's less protein, there's less iron, there's less zinc. There's less of the other major micronutrients. And we were part of a study that showed specifically for rice, there's fewer of the essential B vitamins. And so, as you mentioned, overall, the nutritional quality of the food is quite a bit less as CO2 concentrations
0: continue to increase. How much less are we talking?
2: Rockley, do you want to explain a little bit more and then go into the details of the experiment?
0: Uh,
3: right, so yeah, imagine that you know if you're stuck in one place, right and mm-hmm. then you can't move and then you have all this uh, weather that unpredictable in in many ways, anything like drought and and freezing and heat um, and uh, also, you don't have any food. you have to make your own food and all you can use is sunlight water and and dirt uh, and you know cause most of us would die, right but plants plants are able to, uh, flourish in these conditions and um, because they make their own food, right? And because they make their own food, and if we think logically, right, is any factory that produces anything, you need to have uh, something where you store your product, right, as you cannot mm-hmm. immediately use it. And indeed, mm-hmm. if you look at plant cells, they have these two distinct features that animal cells lack. And that is, one is the central vacuole, and it's huge. It it could take the most of the cell volume. And they are plastids, and plastids are like most well-known as chloroplasts. But there there are also other plastids that are specifically for storing nutrients, and one of those is amyloplasts that are for storing starch. And so uh, because of these storage components in plants, Essentially, what what we eat when you eat, you know, uh, a fruit or vegetable, you actually eat the content of those central vacuoles and uh, plastids to to a, to a large degree, and uh, they allow plants to have very flexible chemical composition, and the, which animal cells really don't don't uh, have such a um, chemical variability. In their content, mm-hmm. but plants do. And the second mm-hmm. thing is, if you live in such a predictable world, you become an up- opportunist. So, plants, if they see excess of any nutrient, they're gonna take it. You know, they're gonna store it. It's like in a good homemaker, if we, if it produced too much of uh, of cake, you know, or cookies, gonna store it for future use. And mm-hmm. that is important to understand um, uh, why plants should change their quality. And uh, that's what kind of original thinking led me uh, going back in the early 2000s. So because we increase CO2 globally, right, plants then uh, start to synthesize more starches and sugars, and they start to store more more of those starches in their tissues. And that doesn't really hurt them. I mean, they, they like it just in case they mm-hmm. want to have it. The problem is that... Uh, the, the plants really don't care about our nutrition, right? We eat plants. We're kind of their enemies. So uh, there is this global shift where all plants, almost all plants around the world start to pack more starches and, and sugars. And, uh, and because their chemical composition allows that, these central vacuoles and plastics allow them to do that, we end up eating more of that and less of other uh, nutrients.
0: So it's a finite amount of space uh, within the plant, and again, I'm come, I am, I am, couldn't be further from from a botanist of any sort here. I mean, I have a garden and it grows okay, <laughs> um. But so there's a, I'm, I'm imagining a finite amount of space in this plant, this storage facility of sorts, and and right now because of the increased carbon dioxide, it's storing more starches and sugars and less of zinc and and the B vitamins and things like that. Is that? way off base? Exactly, per unit of
3: biomass, right. So the the density of starches and sugars overall increases and uh, the density of uh, protein and minerals decreases. Now, there are other uh, physiological mechanisms that also contribute to different quality. So the change in quality is not uniform. Some minerals like, uh, for example, manganese, I I found doesn't really change much, but say magnesium or iron or zinc or um, uh, nitrogen, those drop uh, considerably.
1: That's so wild. The, That's insane. the things
0: we need. Um, <laughs> and if so, I could, so, could
2: I add something oh, yeah, at ahead. the moment? A question that we get a lot is people will come back and say, doesn't it have to do with the soils? But the experiments that Rockley was referring to are done where you have several plots. So the soil's the same. The air temperature is the same, the precipitation is the same, but on some of the plots, you blow carbon dioxide across them. So they're growing under higher CO2. Mm -hmm. So this is not just the soil. This is a change in the plant physiology.
0: Which is a different, and we've talked on other podcasts, and it's something I keep wanting to dig into because America's soil, from however I understand it, is in a very bad place. Right. Right. Uh, uh, so that is a different discussion. But you're saying, with all of that controlled, and we waft some more CO2 over it, uh, that is the that is this having the specific effect.
3: Correct. Right. Yeah. That's and Chris Chris great. makes this good point; <laughs> it delineates that thing because when you start to talk about declining food quality. Uh, you know, people bring other valid issues such as uh, depletion of soils and degradation of soils on really a massive scale. And we have known about that. And um, another issue is the chase for higher yields, where we deliberately breed for higher and higher yields. And that's the single-minded kind of a focus. And so there is a fundamental trade-off between quality and quantity. And uh, if you only focus on quantity, then quality gets uh, lost in the process. Now, this has been known for decades but the issue of rising CO2 uh, making uh, global uh, causing global declines in food quality and contributing to them is, is relatively unknown.
0: Which is not great. Right. <laughs> not great.
3: And to make
2: yeah just, sorry I'll interrupt again and no, to make the no, conversation you
0: should always interrupt. Please.
2: Slightly more complicated I'm Perfect. Back to Iraqli, we're not the only one that eats plants.
0: Right, right. It's easy to stay human focused, but um, in fact, humans don't eat enough plants. Correct. Uh, we prefer burgers, but everybody else eats plants. And the burgers right. come uh,
2: from cows.
1: Cows that eat plants. <laughs> right. <laughs> plants.
0: Right, right. right. That it all starts plants. from right. plants. <laughs> oh God,
1: these cow- It's always back to the cows. Um. Yeah. Hey, so you guys, how, when when did this like you know revelation come to be when was this all did somebody go oh hey i think i think something's going on here did we you know was it something that we stumbled upon or did somebody think well we should start looking into this
3: well the you know the because the co2 we knew the co2 is increasing the biologists and agronomists started to run these experiments where that as chris uh, described the only difference was co2 concentrations and they would Uh, look at many uh, aspects of plant physiology, such as plant growth and uh, amount of nitrogen they use. And they notice that plants use less nitrogen. Uh, They actually um, need less nitrogen. And the reason why is because when CO2 concentrations go up, Uh, Plants have easier time capturing CO2 molecules and they capture them with this uh, Rubisco enzyme, uh, which is very rich in nitrogen, essentially it's a protein. Um, Some say it's uh, one of the most abundant proteins on Earth. And so the plants say, hey, you know, we can be more efficient. And so this was considered like a good thing, you know, higher nitrogen use efficiency for plants. They started to look at minerals and there was this disarray, really. uh, Some cases they declined. In some cases they increased. It's like, you know, it's like you're trying to measure weather temperature in certain city. If you do it five, ten times, you are not going to notice global warming, right? You need massive mm. amount of data. So right. uh, when I started to look at it, I, I saw that th- 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 there was consistency with respect to nitrogen, but the large inconsistency with respect to minerals. But the minerals are the ones that humans are uh, most deficient in their diet, specifically iron and zinc uh, and, uh, you know, calcium and magnesium as well. And so that's where my my concern was that if minerals decline, then that could affect human nutrition. And then I started to make a logical argument why minerals should decline. In other words, that there should be some signal amid all that, all that noise.
0: And that is one of those problems that you stumble upon in the lab, I imagine, and go like, oh shit, this is something I should probably pursue. Not like, oh, this is a little interesting thing. Uh, is you know is the rate of our food uh, is, is the nutritional rate <laughs> declining precipitously? So so, Christy, how did you find your way into this? I was asked
2: to. Rockley and I work with a just a fantastic scientist at USDA that I've known for a long time, Dr. Louis Ziska, uh-huh. and Lou and I have collaborated on a number of projects, and Lou's colla- collaborated extensively with Rockley and others. And as this work was ongoing, the question, of course, was the human health piece. And Mm -hmm. to put the numbers that Iroclay just mentioned into perspective, right now around the world, there's about 815 million people who are food insecure. That Mm -hmm. is, they don't get enough to eat. There is more than 2 billion people who have micronutrient deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So the micronutrient deficiencies are a much larger problem Mm. overall than just food security. Sure. And so Lou brought and, me into the project to say, so what? What does this mean for our health?
0: Sure. And, and this is the thing, and wow. and, and we, we really try not to be fear mongers here, but we do try to be objective about everything that's going on and expose what what is really going on because people aren't getting all of the most important news. And, and that's as much as, uh, you know, writers like, uh, Stephen Pinker and, and guys like that talk about how much uh, statistically, how much better so many different parts of the world, and ways of the world, and people in the world, and things like that have gotten better over the past century, which are which are absolutely true. Um, uh, we are not measuring these things in a vacuum, which is to say that, like the you know the numbers you just talked about, uh, 800 million and, and 2 billion, those are now. Mm-hmm. That's 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 before uh, immigration gets out of control due to climate. That's, you know, that's, that's while people still think, uh, for a variety of reasons, it's very controversial, you know, whether GMOs are good or not, you know, uh, all of these things before we've figured out a, a perennial wheat, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, you know, you look at that and go, th- those numbers could be the tip of the iceberg again, try not to be fear-monger, but going, uh, yes, a lot of things have, 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 have gotten better. However, we have some enormous things that we have to, have to look at.
1: Um, does, uh, does the does this increase in carbon dioxide affect uh, all plants the, the same or are there are there any plants that are not affected?
3: Like uh, you know, Chris mentioned our wonderful colleague uh, Louis Ziska, and he he worked on this CO two effects on plants for a long time. And not just quality, he looked at, for example, at some weeds um, uh, that might benefit from uh, CO two concentrations. The majority mm. of plants are uh, on Earth are called C three plants. And uh, such as what right, does that mean? Uh, that means that when they when they synthesize uh, this uh, CO two into starches, the, the, the one of the products contains three carbons, and uh, unlike C four plants that would have uh, you know four carbons, and so C four plants like maize and many grasses, they are able to concentrate CO two concentrations internally, and so they really, um, they really don't benefit as much from higher CO2 concentrations in the sense of increasing photosynthesis, right? Huh. Um, and so we have this uh, dichotomy between C3 and C4, and there will be a different responses. Um, both plants, however, uh, start to lose less water. Uh, because, again, you know, the, the way this plants get CO2 is that they get it from little openings called stomata. It's like their mouths. And when CO2 goes uh, is higher, they say, hey, you know what? Uh, we, we don't have to keep our mouths so wide open. They partially close those stomata. And as a result, they lose less water. So there is less transpiration that brings all this, you know, water from roots towards shoots. And as the water flow decreases, it also decreases the flow of minerals, some minerals towards roots. That's another effect that uh, results in lower uh, crop quality in both C3 and C4 plants. Wow.
1: Uh, Are are there... um Parts of the world in general that are more affected than others. That's a good question. So
3: you know, thanks to all these researchers that were generating the data on on four continents, and um, when you know, when I encountered a lot of doubt that this is happening, including from plant experts, and this has been going on for many years, uh, I uh, said, okay, let me collect everything that had ever been published, right. Um, as, as I couldn't get grants to actually generate data. So the the, the data I collected is from four continents, um, Australia, Europe, Asia, and North America. There are no data from uh, South America or Africa, unfortunately. But the effect is very pervasive uh, geographically. It's on all latitudes that we have data for, uh, whether temperate forests um, or um, subtropical Regions or tropical regions, and it affects both edible tissues and uh, uh, foliar tissues. So it's pretty systemic effect throughout plant tissues. And the
2: second Got so
0: part, no, no, no good answer, Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Christy, please. So
2: the second part of that question was, what does it mean for those of us who are human centric? And it mm-hmm. really depends on our diet, and so. Sure. The regions that are most vulnerable are places where people rely heavily on cereal crops. So today in Bangladesh, right. even as its economy grows, three or four calories comes from rice.
0: Sure. Sure. And and those, of course, are are the areas of the world that are growing the quickest.
2: Well, there's um, also the poor in our own
0: country sure. who
2: rely heavily on starches. Right. So it's the poor everywhere that are the most affected because they typically have diets that are high in starch.
1: Right.
0: Sure. It's interesting though. And, and, you know, we've tried to really delve a lot into, um, climate, climate justice, environmental justice here, because like you said, big surprise, the poor are being affected the worst. And sometimes, uh, in America, that's by design because, um, the, that's the system we've built, which is terrible. Um, and sometimes, um, that's just that's just the nature of how how a country or region has has developed um no matter no matter how it's going uh but i am curious with if you guys have thoughts on this this new diet and and i am i am i'm 99% uh vegan and and eat plants all day long and whole foods and that's what i feed my children and things like that um and and that's a lot of what this new diet that's been proposed by all these uh, doctors and nutritionists uh have said is you know we have to especially in North America cut our red meat down drastically and increase legumes and 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 things like that and increase grains uh, i'm I'm curious how those two things intersect that proposal which which could theoretically uh, you know the math adds up reduce agricultural emissions greatly and and make people uh, healthier um, but at the same time, like you said those foods that are being proposed are are inherently turns out a lot less nutritious than than either we thought or people people uh, know of. I, I think Christy, I remember seeing a quote with you uh, that, uh, that you had uh, that said something along the lines of like, "How? Why the hell would I know that my bread is less nutritious than I thought it was?" Right. Um. You know that wouldn't. Why would that occur to us person? So I, I'm curious on your guys' thoughts on how we how we make this transition to a new diet that can benefit the world, but at the same time, uh, it, it's not as fantastic as, as we thought, nutrition-wise?
2: That is a good and complicated question. Of course, a good diet is not just the cereal crops. It's also fruits, vegetables. Mm-hmm. There is a mm-hmm. range of sources of food from which we get the nutrients that we need. And mm-hmm. as Iraq very clearly pointed out, the plants are producing those, those needs because we need them. Mm-hmm. It's just the way the plants work, <laughs> and you know they're doing the best they can with what they've got. And so, number one, as you've pointed out repeatedly, this is a new area. And so it sounds always awkward for a scientist to say this. We need a lot more research because we there is this fundamental understanding of the mechanism. and Arali was key to laying that out and other people that we work with, but there's also, what does it mean in the context of a diverse diet? And Mm -hmm. are there ways to understand how we can get the kind of nutrition we need from other sources, understanding that those other sources also may be affected by rising CO2, by changing temperature, changing precipitation? And if the overall quality of our food is declining, then what are our options? You mentioned GMOs. And I will point out that essentially all of our, everything we eat is already genetically modified.
0: Yeah, it's an argument I have more or less every day with people.
2: (laughs) We choose certain things because we like them. They're more robust to the weather patterns. Mm-hmm. People find them more attractive. They're easier to ship to market. So we're already selecting for all kinds of characteristics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can we select for some characteristics that would be beneficial for our health and support the health of the plants?
0: Sure. And and that's I'm curious, <clears throat> and you've talked about how we need a whole hell of a lot more research and, and we just... It, it, mentioned GMOs. And I'm, I'm excited because we are working our way towards towards action here and, and the ways we can dig ourselves out of this hole. So talking about needing a lot more research, do you feel like there are enough people working on this across uh, the the related disciplines? And do you feel like the folks that are working on this are asking the right questions? Do we know the right questions to ask yet? Um, this is what I love about science. You know, like you said, it's awkward as a scientist to say we need more research, but that's what's beautiful about science is we're constantly finding out things that we don't know and trying to prove ourselves wrong and things like that. So I'm, I'm curious if you feel like we're, we're we're starting to head down the right path or paths uh, with this.
2: Well, I'll provide my perspective, and I'd really like to hear Heracles as well. Are we asking the right questions? Yes. We have enough understanding of these basic mechanisms to start asking the right questions. There is a deep understanding within certainly the climate community that we need to have multiple disciplines at the table. We need to work together and collaborate in ways that historically were relatively rare. The major challenge at the moment is there is pretty much no funding. So this issue's gotten enormous media attention. I've given a number of interviews. I know Iraqley's given quite a few interviews. No funders contacted me to say, "Gee, this is really important."
0: So where are you guys getting your your funding for the research currently?
2: I volunteered all my time on the paper.
3: Yeah, I I worked on it uh, without funding since. I mean, since originally, since two thousand one, all my grants got rejected. So I and and then I actually found that grant writing is uh, so kind of wasteful that when I said, okay, what can I do with my just laptop and internet connection that I actually made a faster progress. So um, and um, with regard to uh, these questions that we ask, as as you know, Chris pointed out, we ask. Uh, Right questions, and uh, one is uh, one interesting question in particular is that you know kind of we have uh, two problems with um, with nutrition uh, is that on one hand we have obesity and too much calories for some people, and then we have uh, not enough nutrients for others. So undernutrition, mineral undernutrition, or micronutrient malnutrition and obesity are two largest problems uh, in nutrition today. And what the rising CO2 does, it exacerbates both. So on one hand, it adds these carbs that many people already get in excess. So it I believe it contributes to obesity, and we don't have a proof for that yet. And on on the other hand, it uh, decreases all these nutrients globally, essentially almost in all plants. So it um, uh, intensifies micronutrient deficiencies. And uh, the, the question is, and we want to know is what would be, you know, effects on as uh, precise and obesity when you end up with empty calories. Um, and uh, I, I think you referred to Eat Lancet Commission recent report where they they wanted, uh, they, they want to shift human diets toward more plants and less meat consumption. And <clears throat> one recommendation that i like is that they say reduce the consumption of refined sugars and starches uh, right so this is kind of empty calories and if you shift toward more nutrient dense foods then uh, everybody would uh, benefit right but um they recommend eating less meat and um you know recommendations uh, i have doubts that People will actually switch toward less meats. And, and let me explain why. Uh, I think subconsciously or consciously, uh, people notice that plants become crappier for whatever the reason, soil depletion, rising CO2, chase for higher yields. And uh, their bodies just say, hey, you know what, I don't want to eat lettuce. I want some meat. And we see that as soon as uh, people have access to higher you know, income, they actually, the meat consumption increases. So while the commission recommends doing one thing, I think people will be doing, it's a majority of people will be doing another thing. And um, to combat that really, if we really want to reduce the consumption of meat, then uh, which will be really beneficial for the environment, we really need to uh, make the plants more nutrient dense. And right now, no farmer is paid by the amount of zinc or potassium in grains. They are all paid by the amount of yield, so they absolutely have no incentive adding any zinc to soil unless it boosts yields. And what boosts yields is adding nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, that's it. And that's why all the fields in the world are sprayed by these uh, nutrients, only those three nutrients essentially, and there is an enormous imbalance in the soil that is further exacerbated by increases in CO2.
0: Hey guys, it's Quinn. If you're listening to this, you obviously like podcasts and you probably like music too. On Spotify, you can listen to all of that in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can download episodes to listen to offline, wherever you might be, and you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends via Spotify's integrations with social platforms like Instagram. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. You can just search for Important Not Important on the Spotify app or browse podcasts in the Your Library tab. Very convenient. And of course, you can follow us so you never miss an episode of Important Not Important. Uh, Spotify is the world's leading music streaming service, and now it can be your go-to for podcasts, too. (laughs) Yes, and, and and you know, and there was news this week about all the all the small farmers in in um in America who who effectively c- cannot make money anymore. I believe they said the 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 uh average revenue among uh, I'm going to mangle this and we'll put it in the show notes somewhere and, and I'll correct it at some point, but uh average revenue among small farmers in America uh this year was something like um negative $1,000. I it, something just we were just like, "Oh, well this doesn't work anymore." So Inherently, it's it's these huge industrial crops, and of course, we we really, in America we really only grow uh, all these monocrops, which only a small percentage are used for food, anyways. But but like you said, it's it's yield, 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 yield. Um, and again, we do have to grow more food for for all, all of these people. Uh, but but the incentives seem to be all wrong in light of what we know and um, what you have so diligently both worked on for free for twenty years. Um, so we're going to work towards what our listeners can do here, but uh, I guess more... I mean,
3: uh, you know, I would love to hear Chris' response on this, as she's an expert on global health. Uh, I, 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 only see, like, you know, it, the, the from my perspective, is incentives. You gotta change the incentives. Uh, unless you change those incentives, uh, farmers will keep, uh, right, uh, you know, chasing yields, and you can't really blame them. Uh, as you said, their profits decline, but the profits of uh, uh, Big ag and big food industry are increasing, and the farmers just become little widgets in this. And they, you know they are essentially forced to dump those chemicals and uh, pesticides and herbicides and f- synthetic fertilizers. And um, uh, you know if if we have other maybe it's regulations where you start actually pay farmers for higher quality crops, maybe then things will change. But I would love to hear Chris' uh, answer on this.
2: Well, I have a slightly different perspective I'd like to add. I fully agree with everything that Iraq Lee said. We were part of a paper published last year that looked specifically at rice and the concentrations of CO2 you'd expect later in the century if we don't keep emissions under control. And it looked at 18 of the most popular rice lines in Japan and in China. And... Essentially, there were declines for all of the nutrients we're talking about across all the rice lines. Some declined less, some declined a lot more, some of the declines were quite large. As I recall, in one of the rice lines, for example, folate, which is associated, a lack of folate is associated with birth defects of up to 30%. But when you're thinking about whether it's possible to genetically modify, if they all decline, that's not going to be an option. So this is one of the research questions of, are there other rice lines where you don't see such a large decline? Are there other ways that you can try and take what you've got with that genetic code and find Mm -hmm. ways that you can increase or even just maintain the concentrations of these critical Mm -hmm. nutrients for our health, even as CO2 rises. So the challenge is difficult and a Rockley's right. There has to be incentives. There has to be ways to think about how to ensure that what is brought to our grocery store is as nutritious as possible. And you don't want to do that at the expense of yield.
0: Right, because we, it's, it's not just take the foot off the pedal with yield that is imperative. However, um, we're just producing more and more of less nutritious food. And again, like you said, you know, uh, the least we can do is try to maintain the nutrition we've got because the air is only uh, going to get worse for a little while, as far as we can tell. Um, so, all right, a- a- as we said at the beginning, and what we always try to do is to, to point our listeners towards actions they can take with their voice their vote and their dollars so they can get out there and, and, and help kick some ass. Cause it sounds like you guys are not getting really any support, despite yep. all the publicity, which is great. So <laughs> that's great. We're not getting support. <laughs> no, I, please. I being please
1: <laughs> sense the sarcasm. He, heavy,
0: heavy, sarcasm. heavy, sarcasm. <laughs> heavy sarcasm. <laughs> uh, usually by this point in this kind of conversation, that's where, that's where I trend. It's <laughs> and, either that or we're just going to start yelling in frustration. Yeah, or I just start crying on the microphone. Or crying. So yeah. <clears throat> um, I chose sarcasm. <laughs> Um, so, all right, their voice, uh, one of the overarching goals is, is really to shine a light on where we need to go as a people. So what are the big actionable questions, specific questions uh, our listeners should be asking of our, of our current representatives?
2: The basic question is, what do we know about the nutritional quality of our food in the United States and how that could be affected both by rising carbon dioxide concentrations and also by by climate change itself, because climate change is going to affect where you can grow certain crops. There's Mm -hmm. been a lot of publicity around chocolate being affected. I live in the state of Washington, and there's lots of discussion here on how hops are going to be affected. We grow 75% of all the hops that are used in beer in the United States.
0: And so understand. Okay,
1: if the chocolate and the beer are getting fucked with, I'm pissed.
0: (laughs) You heard, and and coffee too. (laughs) And coffee, get out of it. Half the coffee crops in the The world. Three things
1: I put in my body.
0: You don't eat anything else.
1: (laughs) Pasta. You forgot to add the pasta.
0: Oh, God. It's just getting worse and worse. And you wonder why I'm sarcastic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. I just, yeah. (laughs) Right. By a semi there.
0: That's why I mentioned
2: it. it's important for people to realize this is a broad based yeah. issue, and we don't have the fundamental answers to that question.
0: So I, I'm curious uh, because again, I really want to get specific. So in areas like uh, Washington, where <clears throat> you're growing 75% of the hops, um, you know, or in the Central Valley in California, where we're growing most of the nation's uh, fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. um, where we're currently also out of water, different discussion. So those are places where our listeners can get really specific with their representatives and say, uh, you know, take different tax. it seems like, and say things like, hey, we're growing 75% of the hops and, and craft beers exploding and all of these things. Uh, is it less nutritious? Is, it, is, it, is the crop as, as fortified as it once was? How is that going to affect our economy? How is that going to affect... Uh, our revenues, you know, is it going to have to be grown somewhere else? You know, D- does that make sense? I'm trying to point people in the right direction. Yeah, no,
3: definitely. And in fact, you know, what we're talking about, it's not it's not in the future. It's already happening. There are two studies, right. one by uh, Davis, uh, that showed that uh, vegetables and fruits in the United States um, declined, or was, uh, the quality declined in the last several decades. Uh, the similar study was done in Britain. By anna Marie Mayer, and then um, we have a very recent study by Crane uh, that analyzed uh, data from uh, again it's cows it's it's a it's a cow poop they they had this data about the quality of uh, f- um, uh, fecal samples going back to 1994. And because their sample size was huge, it was 36,000, these fecal samples data, they detected a decline in forage quality to the point that cows are uh, protein-stressed. So uh, just over the last 22 years, uh, and CO2 concentrations you know, increased over that time from 360 parts per million to 410. It's like increased, I don't know, like 14%. So this is something ongoing. And definitely, you know, we need to ask uh, our representatives, what is going on with our food? And what's essential is a large sample sizes, because there is a lot of noise in the system. And if you use a typical sample size of three, you are not going to see that signal. But that signal is there, it's pervasive, and it's global. And we need, of course, funding for that.
2: And it's It's large sample sizes over time. Right. That this is not a one-off, we do it this year and then we're done. We've got to see how changes happen as our weather changes, as our CO2 changes.
3: Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's longitudinal, right? Trends. uh, And uh, we really, there is a, continuous uh, paucity of data that uh, really out of, you know, many, many studies, just few produce data on the quality and nutrient content. So there's tremendous gaps in our knowledge that can be addressed with uh, existing tools. It just requires uh,
0: a little bit of funding. All right. So I guess that moves into the next two pieces of the question.
1: Right, right. So so also, uh, you know, their vote, right? What uh, what can our listeners do with their vote? Who, who are your, um, your most reliable allies, uh, elected allies out there today, uh, if there are any at all?
2: <laughs> well, as we mentioned at the beginning, I did testify yesterday to the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology. Voting matters. As you noted, it's one of the first hearings on climate science in quite a while. And there's real enthusiasm for talking about climate change and thinking about what needs to be done. So reinforcing that getting out and making sure you vote, if this is important to you, really helps. One of the things that you'll see in the various media write-ups that are coming across my desks is that in the hearing, essentially every single member, Republican member, started out his statement with some something about how he agreed with the climate on the the science on climate change Mm -hmm. which is good surprising there's more enthusiastic enthusiasm from the democrats as you would expect but you know Mm -hmm. basically the entire committee is it's a committee on science and we're going to talk about the science of climate change and what needs to be done, taking into account, there's going to be winners and losers, and that's going to be a difficult issue to manage. And how to do that mm-hmm. efficiently and effectively mm-hmm. were parts of the questions that arose. And we've got a group of people in the House of Representatives now that want to have those discussions.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, that is a, a perfectly tangible result of, of voting, folks. Is that um, we get people who've been working uh, uh, right. somewhat in a vacuum, frustratingly for 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 decades on this, to actually be able to come and, like you said, uh, be a facilitator um, to 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 hopefully pass some of that knowledge uh, and hopefully spur some action into people who actually have the power to do something about it. And now we're actually seeing that. I, I think I did see somewhere it literally was the first committee meeting in like eight years, which is. Yikes. Insane. Um, now right. we just need to get
1: people to vote.
0: Yep. So uh, what about with their dollar? We talked about incentives. Um, you know, hopefully that's that's something, again, that can we can start to work with on things like the farm bill. But what about literally on a day-to-day basis, certain ways to spend their money, uh, I guess, in two ways? One is commercially. Uh, are, are there any opportunities to spend their money in the right way? And, and two, um, and again, I, I would love to get specific on that. Uh, and two, similarly, uh, with regard to research or foundations supporting work like yours, cause since it sounds like grants are more or less non existent, um, where can we point people?
2: I honestly don't know. Rockley, do you know where people could be pointed to?
3: In terms of funding, um, no. I don't really know because scientists usually go to the government, like NSF and NIH, uh, for the for the grants. With respect to how they can spend their dollars, you know, uh, like I, I have this lawn, right, and I see my neighbors uh, using uh, you know synthetic fertilizers and putting all these herbicides and pesticides, and they take pride if their lawn uh, looks like lawn looks like you know uh, a golf field. And so they – Uh, There is no this little awareness that that kills the diversity, that uh, there are no flowers there. It's just the grass. And uh, that that reduces the source of uh, food for pollinators. And we know that bees are declining. So on this local level, I mean, why not to have more natural lawns, right? Stop supporting this uh, big uh, chemical industry that essentially promotes uh, using these synthetic fertilizers and chemicals. Uh, Supporting organic foods would uh, help as well, and there is already movement where uh, people start to grow more local foods and uh, some restaurants start to gather toward that, toward more um, sustainably raised uh, products. Uh, So these day-to-day decisions, I think they, they do have an effect.
2: I read yesterday that there is more acreage in the United States devoted to lawns than to any single crop
1: that is shocking i I read that same thing it's it's like an insane amount of acreage yes more, yeah, more than any crop in the f- world. Yeah, that was that was a wild stat.
3: And the amount of chemicals they dump into it, and then these uh, lawn machines, and you know, they, they take pride in that. That this, some, somehow they identify <laughs> some way at least in my neighborhood, the goodness with how good your lawn looks. And really, I mean, nobody plays soccer on that or golf. So, um, and you know, this is uh, some decision that everybody can make. Uh, So, yeah, that's a good point, Chris. And,
2: And stepping back a bit, the fundamental issue that we're talking about is rising CO2 in the atmosphere. And if we can stop that rise, keep that rise from going much too quickly, we will see a benefit for our nutrition in the long run because we won't have such severe changes in the nutritional quality of our food like we've been talking about. So a fundamental issue is thinking about how to reduce your own greenhouse gas emissions. Everything from being more efficient when you do errands, go out and do them all at once, instead of going out and back, you know, planning how you're using those greenhouse gases you're going to burn.
3: Right. And uh, I want to point one one thing as you know, Chris mentioned this rising CO2 levels and what we can do about them. very often, uh, critics of, of, uh, of you know, this view of declining crop quality um, say, look, we increase uh, CO2 in greenhouses deliberately. And we get this, you know, last time I ate greenhouse, uh, food from the greenhouse, nothing happened to me. So, you know, stop this alarmist crap and, you know, uh, a little drop of a nutrient doesn't make a big difference. And what they're really missing, and I'm frustrated that uh, even the experts in the, in, in these uh, areas in terms of plants, they, they, they're missing is the scale. Okay. So, yes. You can raise uh, plants in higher CO2 in controlled environments, such as greenhouses, where you also enrich soil. There is no problem with that. I love food from greenhouses. But the problem is that all around the world, we're increasing CO2 only. We don't add zinc, potassium, magnesium to our soils. And the issue is the scale. It's not something that eight time drop one time in my bowl of cereal. I would not give a, you know, a damn about it. It's the thing is that it's every day with every plant serving that you eat for the rest of your life. Doesn't matter what plant you eat. You switch from a salad to something else, to different crops. It's everywhere. All, almost all minerals are declining and what is cumulative effect that is scaring me? And uh, it's really the issue of scale, just like with weather, right? If, if the temperature today is three degrees higher, I don't care. But if the temperature is three degrees higher all around the globe, we have a problem.
0: Sure, right. sure. There's a wonderful uh, writer for the New York Times who wrote when everyone was getting angry about the polar vortex and things like this and are... And Just incredible president was tweeting about how how if the weather is so cold, how could there be climate change? And she Mm -hmm. she made a wonderful analogy to, again, weather is not climate, Um, you know, uh, effectively saying, um, and I'm going to mangle it, but we'll put in the show notes, uh, you know, uh, uh, weather is what you wear every day and climate is what you keep in your closet. Um, And uh, saying, you know, there aren't a lot of uh, Floridians, they might have to wear coats today. Uh, but they don't have a, a, a closet full of coats right. um, because that's that's how climate works. Um, so I, l- let right. me ask one last question before we get to the end here, and I can't thank you guys enough for your time. So so like you said, you're having a hard time coming up with places where they can really focus their money because most of the grants come from, from, from uh, national science and, and things like that. What does a typical, let's say you were to go out uh, for, for a grant for this research, how much are we talking about what what is what is not what 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 are you guys looking for? what would what would enable this research? not obviously the biggest number in the world or the smallest, but what would get this going? what just so people have an idea?
2: Uh, rockley and I worked on a proposal that was unsuccessful. I, all of our proposals have been unsuccessful. And we were asking over several years for several million dollars irrockly i don't recall the total at the moment
3: right mm-hmm. yeah the right the welcome trust proposal was running yes uh, s- somewhere like you know um, a million or two but uh, you know i i did some work without money at all. So, in, in in this case, even a little bit money, just going to conferences would have helped, um, and uh, spread the word. But uh, for example, we specifically one of the proposals we applied was to generate new data in a very uh, high, efficient way, high throughput way, and that was. Uh, costing uh, renting greenhouses and so on, it was only costing uh, several hundred thousand dollars for like two years,
0: right? That's just not a lot of money. But
2: let me step back. There was, oh, more than a decade ago, there was concern when the first nanoparticles emerged and there was concern about their health issues. And the National Academy of Sciences put together some expert panel to take a look at what kind of investment should we make? And I don't recall the exact number, but it was somewhere around the range of at the level of the federal government for extramural research of 150 to 200 million dollars per year. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And those are the kinds of numbers that are typical when you see an issue that's important in which you need to make investment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And yes, it like is a big number, we but it's a really big problem as well.
1: Yeah, when when researchers on four continents are saying, "Hey, the so all of the food in the whole fucking world is is not as health, is like not as good for you as it should be anymore," how does no, how does nobody give you any money?
2: Because that's the way it is right now. I mean, I don't know how I just how don't it is. get it. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's I just fact. my mind is blown.
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the reality. <laughs> but when you think of the level of ambition in the National Institutes of Health when we had the outbreak of Zika. They came forward and said, "We're going to invest a couple hundred million dollars into developing a
0: vaccine." Right, which is necessary. However, uh, you know, again, hey, Brian, what are the two things we can't live without? Food and water. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) pretty Uh, huge deal. Okay, well, that. Okay, all right. We're gonna we're gonna continue to work and talk to you guys about that on on our end. Not saying anyone can move mountains, but there's got to be. There's got to be fixes to this. Okay. <laughs> We're getting close to cut time here. Uh, Brian is just seething on the couch over here. I just don't. Um, cannot thank mad. you both enough for your time today and, and everything else you have done in the past. In the past 20 years. Uh, 20 years. 40 um, Is there anyone else you can think of that we should talk to on this subject or other subjects uh, that are, again, pertinent to uh, the survival of everybody? Anybody you recommend, you, you, we can mention them now or we can uh, talk about it offline. But we always love recommendations from our guests.
3: I mean, definitely. Like I think, as, as Chris mentioned, uh, Luis Ziska did amazing work. Um, and I mean, as a government employer, I'm not sure if he would be allowed, but if he is, that would be really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, to talk to him. Um, and then um, um, also uh, Max Tau did some work uh, in Texas. Um, uh, he did the work of showing that the protein declines in edible parts of crops.
2: And Rockley, who's doing the work with the cows?
3: Uh, right. So uh, Crane, uh, Joseph Crane does it. And uh, He's an interesting guy. I think he made money on um, some genetic kind of, um, um, some, 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 something related to genetics. He, he has his own company. And so he f- I think he funds his own research, which is an, admirable, oh, wow. <laughs> really admirable. Um, so, um, all right, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Crane. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, his venture is called Jonah Ventures. And it's in Kansas, oh. Manhattan, Kansas.
2: And when All you do right, talk be. to Lou, if Lou can talk to you as a federal employee, he's also done mm-hmm. really interesting work on issues like ragweed and how that's getting mm-hmm. worse with climate change. Poison ivy, which is also getting worse with climate change. Yes. and
3: the decline in uh, pollen quality also, uh, Lou showed that uh, uh, pollen... A protein in pollen declines by thirty uh, percent because of rising co two specifically uh, and so that could affect uh, bees so uh, uh, Dr. Ziska says this uh, comprehensive view of what what co two does to uh, plants
0: That's a good one I would love to dig into bees um, oh yeah yeah uh, yeah all right um well those those are helpful and, and again you, if you have anybody else please uh, send them all our our way. Brian, you want to bring it home here? Uh, Yeah, Christy and
1: Rackley, it's time for the lightning round, which is not a lightning (laughs) round, Uh, but Quinn's going to ask you some
0: questions, and the answers are going to be wonderful. And then we'll let you guys get out of here. Um, uh, When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful?
2: I've had the privilege of being involved in national and international assessments. For 20 years, and of as a participant in those, of assessing the body of literature to come up with policy relevant recommendations. And then, certainly, in the international sphere, of seeing governments actually take some of those recommendations up, seriously discussing them, talking about what they could do. It's a lot of work, it's all volunteer work, and it's really rewarding to see that governments then consider that in their policies and their programs.
3: Yeah, I mean for me uh I you know when I was like writing this paper uh on the linking CO2 to human nutrition uh I was concerned about like that, that might potentially affect everybody. So I was really hoping to publish that paper and thought that that way could, uh, could affect, uh, you know, that was uh, one of the most meaningful things uh, uh, back in 2002 and I
0: did. Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. You guys are, you guys are making change. Um, uh, for each of you, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months?
3: Uh, well uh i i would uh, mention both chris and, uh, and dr Ziska really because uh, as you know my grants were rejected and uh, I really got depressed about the whole situation that it was not really getting traction uh some ecologists were publishing papers saying that there is actually, Quality is not dropping, which later were withdrawn, those papers. So, yeah, and then, you know, uh, Lou reached to me and asked me to help with this governmental report, and then it, it took from there, so I really treasure that collaboration. I
2: fully agree.
0: Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Boy, I'm so glad we were able to get both of you on the line. Yes. So great.
1: What, what do you What do you two do when you feel overwhelmed?
0: Things can be overwhelming these days. What specifically do you do for some (laughs) self-care? Work too hard? Um, (laughs) No, no. No, come on.
2: (laughs) I'm privileged to work with a broad group of people like Arockley that are so inspiring. And so I look to my colleagues, look at the work they're doing, look at how much effort they're putting into trying to get the word out about a variety of risks with climate change. And I get inspired by everything that they're doing and think, I can go do some more.
3: Yes, I mean, this is collaboration, really, that, uh, and you know, internet allows it to collaborate. So this project that we've been working, really inspiring. Another thing what I do is I have this Pomodoro technique, which is a kind of, I think, very popular, where I, I just- I love the
0: Pomodoro <laughs> yes, technique.
3: For 25 minutes, right, very focused work. And you, you can't, uh, right, interruption breaks it. And so your Pomodoro is voided. So that makes you keep going. So, and I, I and I see how many Pomodoros I can do a day, so-
0: um, I love the pomodoro yeah. technique. It changed my writing forever. You it's see, amazing.
3: Exactly right. So yes, and uh, how many pomodoro? What's your
0: record in terms of pomodoro? L- look, we don't need to shame me <laughs> on this podcast. All right? We've had we've had such a nice time. I bet Rakli's <laughs> got more. I'm working. Yeah, I would think so. <sighs> Not
3: really. No, I mean, uh, sustainably, I can't do more than four per day sustainably. But yeah, and some days, even some deadline is, I might be twelve. I may, maybe was sixteen.
1: The high. twelve.
0: All right, I'm out of here. That's enough. <laughs> wow, that's enough.
1: That's wild. Um. Uh. Hey guys, how do you consume the news? How? Yeah. How? Yes. Yeah. Where Where do is you it, get your news it, from? Is it
0: paper? Is it Is it Twitter? Is it Do you ignore it? Radio, podcasts. Uh, I, subscribe, I subscribe. I yep.
2: subscribe to more newspapers than I want to admit online. <laughs> And so I, I read newspapers online, and sometimes I look at Twitter.
3: Uh-huh. And I,
2: if I can, if I'm at home and I've got the time, I'll watch the national news in the evening from one of the big broadcasting houses.
3: huh. I see. I, I really just use my like Google News that gives this source and you can indicate specific interests and uh, supplement it with Twitter when it you know comes specifically to science. So yeah, right. maybe maybe i just spent too much time reading news, you know. So and it uh, many ways they're depressing. So yeah, um, it's better to do Pomodoros, I think. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> yes. I now whenever I'm writing and doing my pomodoro, I'm gonna think somewhere. Rockley's working on something that's so much more <laughs> important, but he's doing the same thing.
1: How short are the breaks in between the 25-minute segments? of uh,
0: Right,
3: okay. yeah, about like five minutes, and then technically after 40, you should do a longer break, but um, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for me, the primary thing is that you are you can't break the Pomodoro, so those 25 minutes, whether it's internal interruption or external, you know, you 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 are not going to take mm-hmm. it because you, you will right. lose Pomodoro. Okay. There is actually an online program where people kind of record all Pomodoros, I think, tomato.es and so i'm mm-hmm. there too so I'm, I'm not near at all near top people some people do like consistently 16 18 pom- pomodoros a uh,
0: day uh, a day these people clearly don't have children wow uh, <laughs> so many pomodoros yeah look i'll be happy with what i got i can always do better you're you're an inspiration
1: <laughs> um, last one last one if you could amazon prime one book to donald trump what would that book be
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've gotten everything from coloring books To the constitution To uh, the little prince I mean you name it
2: I guess the question is why do that When he's very proudly pronounced That he does not read Let's say
0: someone to was going here. to tie him down And read it to him You're going to have to suspend reality <laughs> <have it> <laughs> But I'm just saying If you could flood one thing So basically the context is We have an Amazon wish list All of our guests recommend something We put it on there And then our listeners can go on there and they do click on these things and it sends it to the White House. Um, So it's a small act of defiance, despite the fact that, I mean, he probably can't even handle a coloring book. But should he be able to? Mm -hmm. I would be curious to hear what you got.
2: Yesterday, Michael Mann was one of two people who won the Taylor Award. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And Michael, the other was Warren Washington, both remarkable scientists and Michael's got some very good books explaining climate change.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a pretty smart cat. <laughs>
2: and he's a brilliant communicator.
0: Mm-hmm. We actually interviewed, he wrote a co wrote a children's book oh, yeah? um, ah. with one of our prior guests. And we had her on, uh, boy, early on. Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes. But I think it's her a- birthday today. What? what?
1: I'm just. <laughs> letting you know that okay. i believe it anyway yeah, he the is problem?
0: he is incredible and what he's done for for the for the category over the past 20 years is amazing
1: yeah. all right um, so anything by michael Mann? yep iraq yeah. anything in mind well yeah that would that, be an excellent choice yes but for whatever the reason the first uh,
3: that came to my mind is einstein in love uh that's a book by david Overby, and, and i think if uh uh, Mr. Trump read it. He would have this appreciation for science and that that you know uh, single minded uh, focus on uh, on this uh, you know kind of abstract thinking, but at the same time so profound that really changed our understanding of reality. And um, there there is love story there too. So I really love that book. Awesome,
0: awesome. I love it. Uh, guys, where can our listeners follow you on the internet, if at all? Um,
2: I'm on Twitter, and Araucli on Twitter. I yeah. direct the Center for Health and the Global Environment, and we've got a webpage that people can follow.
3: So I guess Twitter, I mean, you just Google my name, but uh, usually there are some sites um, uh, with info. But Twitter, my handle is at uh, loladze, and my last name, L-O-L-A-D-Z-E. I love Excellent. It.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, listen, guys, we're going to let you get out of here. I'm sure the snow is accumulating in both of your locations, uh, which is. Not helpful. Um, we cannot thank you enough for obviously your time today, and again, as Brian alluded to, everything you went through to 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 make it to this little conversation, uh, but also obviously for everything you have done and continue to do uh, for for science, uh, for food and climate, and also obviously for the rest of us. Um, and uh, we're going to try to do what we can to help make it a little more, little easier. you guys get the word out as much as we possibly can mobilize the army behind you
3: we
2: really appreciate that thank
3: you yeah thank you very much it's uh you know spreading awareness of this issue is really important so we uh, are really grateful to you to reaching out to us
0: absolutely well guys we will uh we will talk to you soon and, and thank you so much again thanks to our incredible guest today and thanks to all of you for tuning in